Today's C.S. Lewis Daily is, as always, brought to you by Prometheus Studies by Jen Finelli. Prometheus Studies focuses on finding God in the unusual places we may not look for him, such as Mario, Palabolas, Tarantulas, and, and other silly places. Today we are reading C.S. Lewis's essay on transposition. In the church to which I belong this day is set apart for commemorating the descent of the Holy Ghost upon the first Christian shortly after the Ascension. I want to consider one of the phenomena which accompanied or followed this descent, the phenomenon which our translation calls speaking with tongues, and which the learned call glossolalia. You will not suppose that I think this the most important aspect of Pentecost, but I have two reasons for selecting it. In the first place, it would be ridiculous for me to speak about the nature of the Holy Ghost or the modes of his operation. That would be an attempt to teach when I have nearly all to learn. In the second place, glossolalia has often been a stumbling block to me. It is, to be frank, an embarrassing phenomenon. St. Paul himself seems to have been rather embarrassed by it in 1 Corinthians and labors to turn the desire and the attention of the church to more obviously edifying gifts. But he goes no further. He throws in almost parenthetically the statement that he himself spoke with tongues more than anyone else and that he does not question the spiritual or supernatural source of this phenomenon. The difficulty, I feel, is this. On the one hand, glossolalia has remained an intermittent variety of religious experience down to the present day. Every now and then, we hear that in some revivalist meeting, one or more of those present has burst into a torrent of what appears to be gibberish. The thing does not seem to be edifying, and all non-Christian opinion would regard it as a kind of hysteria, an involuntary discharge of nervous excitement. A good deal even of Christian opinion would explain most instances of it in exactly the same way, and I must confess that it would be very hard to believe that in all instances of it the Holy Ghost is operating. We suspect, even if we cannot be sure, that it is usually an affair of the nerves. That is one horn of the dilemma. On the other hand, we cannot as Christians shelve the story of Pentecost or deny that there are, at any rate, the speaking of tongues was miraculous. For the men spoke not gibberish, but languages unknown to them, though known to other people present, and the whole event of which this makes part is built into the very fabric of the birth story of the church. It is this very event which the risen Lord had told the church to wait for, almost in the last words he uttered before his ascension. It looks, therefore, as if we shall have to say that the very same phenomenon, which is sometimes not only natural but even pathological, is at other times, or at least at least one other time, the organ of the Holy Ghost. And this seems at first very surprising and very open to attack. The skeptic will certainly seize this opportunity to talk to us about Occam's razor, to accuse us of multiplying hypotheses. If most instances of glossolalia are covered by hysteria, is it not, he will ask, extremely probable that that explanation covers the remaining instances, too? It is to this difficulty that I would gladly bring a little ease, if I can, and I will begin by pointing out that it belongs to a class of difficulties. The closest parallel to it within that class is raised by the erotic language and imagery we find in the mystics. In them, we find a whole range of expressions, and therefore possibly of emotions, with which we are quite familiar in another context, and in which, in another context, have a clear natural significance. But in the mystical writings, it is claimed that these elements have a different cause. And once more, the skeptic will ask why the cause, which we are content to accept for 99 instances of such language, should not be held to cover the 102. The hypothesis that mysticism is an erotic phenomenon will seem to him immensely more probable than any other.
Put in its most general terms, our problem is that of the obvious continuity between things which are admittedly natural and things which, it is claimed, are spiritual. The reappearance in what professes to be our supernatural life of all the same old elements would make up our natural life, and it would seem of no other. If we have really been visited by a revelation from beyond nature, is it not very strange that an apocalypse can furnish heaven with nothing more than selections from terrestrial experience, crowns, thrones, and music, and that devotion can find no language but that of human lovers, and that the rite whereby Christians enact a mystical union should turn out to be only the old, familiar act of eating and drinking? And you may add that the same, very same problem also breaks out on a lower level, not only between spiritual and natural, but also between higher and lower levels of the natural life. Hence, cynics may very plausibly challenge our civilized conception of the difference between love and lust by pointing out that when all is said and done, they usually end in what is physically the same act. They similarly challenge the difference between justice and revenge on the ground that what finally happens to the criminal may be the same. And in all these cases, let us admit that the cynics and skeptics have a good prima facie case. The same acts do appear in justice as well as in revenge. The consummation of humanized and conjugal love is physiologically the same as that of merely biological lust. Religious language and imagery, and probably religious emotion too, contains nothing that has not been borrowed from nature. Now it seems to me that the only way to refute the critic here is to show that the same prima facie case is equally plausible in some instances where we all know, not by faith or by logic, but empirically, that it is in fact false. Can we find an instance of higher and lower where the higher is within almost everyone's experience? I think we can. Consider the following quotation from Pepe's diary. Pepe's diary. With my wife to the king's house to see the virgin martyr, and it is mighty pleasant. But that which did please me beyond anything in the whole world was the wind music, when the angel comes down, which is so sweet that it ravished me, and indeed, in a word, did wrap up my soul so that it made me really sick, just as I have formerly been when in love with my wife. And it makes me resolve to practice wind music and to make my wife do the like. <laughs> There are several points here that deserve attention. One, that the internal sensation accompanying intense aesthetic delight was indistinguishable from the sensation accompanying two other experiences, that of being in love and that of being, say, in a rough channel crossing. And two, that of the other two experiences, one at least is the very reverse of pleasurable. No man enjoys nausea. And three, that Pepe's was nevertheless anxious to have that experience, whose sensational accompaniment was identical with the very unpleasant accompaniment of sickness. That was why he decided to take up wind music. That may be true that not many of us have fully shared Pepe's experience, but we have all experienced that sort of thing. For myself, I find that if during a moment of intense aesthetic rapture one tries to turn around and catch by introspection, what one is actually feeling, one can never lay one's hand on anything but a physical sensation. In my case, it is a kind of kick or flutter in the diaphragm. Perhaps that is all Pepe's meant by really sick, but the important point is this, I find that this kick or flutter is exactly the same sensation which, in me, accompanies great and sudden anguish. Introspection can discover no difference at all between my neural response to very bad news and my neural response to the overture of the magic flute. If I were to judge simply by sensations, I should come to the absurd conclusion that joy and anguish are the same thing, that what I most dread is the same with what I most desire. Introspection discovers nothing more or different in the one than in the other. 
and I expect that most of you, if you're in the habit of noticing some things, will report more or less the same. Now let us take a step further. These sensations, Pepe's sickness and my flutter in the diaphragm, do not merely accompany very different experiences as an irrelevant or neutral addition. We may be quite sure that Pepe's hated that sensation when it came in real sickness, and we know from his own words that he liked it when it came with wind music, for he took measures to make as sure as possible of getting it again. And I likewise love this internal flutter in one context and call it a pleasure and hate it in another and call it misery. It is not a mere sign of joy and anguish, it becomes what it signifies. When the joy thus flows over into the nerves, that overflow is its consummation. When the anguish thus flows over, that physical symptom is the crowning horror. The very same thing which makes the sweetest drop of all in the sweet cup also makes the bitterest drop in the bitter. And here I suggest we have found what we are looking for. I take our emotional life to be higher than the life of our sensations. Not, of course, morally higher, but richer, more varied, more subtle. And this is a higher level which nearly all of us know. And I believe that if anyone watches carefully the relation between his emotions and his sensations, he will discover the following facts. That the nerves do respond, and in a sense most adequately and exquisitely, to the emotions. That their resources are far more limited, the possible variations of sense far fewer than those of emotion. And three, that the senses compensate for this by using the same sensation to express more than one emotion, even, as we have seen, to express opposite emotions. Where we tend to go wrong is in assuming that if there is to be a correspondence between two systems, it must be a one-for-one -one correspondence. That A in the one system must be represented by, um, not, by not capital A in the other, and so on. But the correspondence between emotion and sensation turns out not to be of that sort, and there never could be correspondence of that sort where one system was really richer than the other. If the richer system is to be represented in the poor at all, this can only be by giving each element in the poorer symptom, poor system more than one meaning. The transposition of the richer into the poor must, so to speak, be algebraical, not mathematical. Which is interesting because multiple neural pathways in real life can carry more well we're finding that many neural pathways link to certain thoughts that have been had over and over again but there are at least certain areas of the brain that have redundant um redundant purposes um which i know as a physician it's it's complicated it's very complex very complex little system that we have if you are to translate from a language which has a large vocabulary into a language that has a small vocabulary, then you must be allowed to use several words in more than one sentence. If you are to write a language with 22 vowel sounds and an alphabet with only 5 vowel characters, then you must be allowed to give each of those 5 characters more than one value. If you are making a piano version of a piece originally scored for orchestra, then the same piano notes which represent flutes in one passage must also represent violins in another. As the examples show, we are all quite familiar with this kind of transposition or adaptation from a richer to a poorer medium. The most familiar example is that, of all, is the art of drawing. The problem here is to represent a three-dimensional world on a flat sheet of paper. The solution is perspective, and perspective means that we must give more than one value to a two-dimensional shape. Thus, in drawing of a cube, we use an acute angle to represent what is a right angle in the real world. But elsewhere, an acute angle on the paper may represent what was already an acute angle in the real world. For example, the point of a spear or the gable of a house. 
The very same shape which you must draw to give the illusion of a straight road receding from the spectator is also the shape you draw for a dunce's cap. As with the lines, so with the shading. Your brightest light in the picture is, in literal fact, only plain white paper, and this must do for the sun, or a lake in evening light, or snow, or human flesh. I now make two comments on the instances of transposition which are already before us. 1. It is clear that in each case what is happening in the lower medium can be understood only if we know the higher medium. The instance where this knowledge is most commonly lacking is the musical one. The piano version means one thing to the musician who knows the original orchestra score, and another thing to the man who hears it simply as a piano piece. But the second man would be at an even greater disadvantage if he had never heard of any instrument but a piano, and even doubted the existence of other instruments. Even more, we understand pictures only because we know and inhabit the three-dimensional world. If we can imagine a creature perceived only two dimensions, and yet could somehow be aware of the lines as he crawled over them on paper, we shall easily see how impossible it would be for him to understand. At first he might be prepared to accept on authority our assurance that there was a world in three dimensions. When we pointed to the lines on the paper and tried to explain, say, that this is a road... Would he not reply that the shape which we are asking him to accept as a revelation of our mysterious other world was the very same shape which, on our own showing, elsewhere meant nothing but a triangle? And soon I think he would say, you keep on telling me of this other world and its unimaginable shapes which you call solid, but isn't it very suspicious that all the shapes which you offer me as images or reflections of the solid ones turn out on inspection to be simply the old two-dimensional shapes of my own world as I have always known it? I don't know if you all have read Flatland. Um, which is exactly this scenario. You should absolutely read it. It's some fantastic philosophy, and perhaps I shall read it to you, along with some of these C.S. Lewis quotes at some point in time. Isn't it very suspicious that all the shapes which you offer me as images or reflections of the solid ones turn out on inspection to be simply the old two-dimensional shapes of my own world as I have always known? <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow, my friends.